Shooting it raw? Yes. Shooting it raw. Perfect. Here we are. Okay. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure. Yes. It's been ages since I've seen you. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, well, listen, this is great. Uh, I, I really appreciate you, you joining me. Uh, I, you know, I should probably do a proper introduction. So Nisa Cornish. Uh, do you prefer Nisa Cornish or Nisa Marion? Yeah, Nisa Cornish. Oh, Fine. sweet, sweet. So we obviously have the connection to Andy, who was on the, the podcast who, uh, a few a couple of months ago, many weeks mm -hmm. ago, whatever. Yeah. So um, as it happens, uh, we've known each other for many years. And I mm -hmm. thought I love the work that you do. And uh, if I can bring more awareness to what you're doing now or what you've done, uh, just to who you are, I mean, such a good thing to have you on, on the podcast. So thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, it's, it's great to be here. Awesome. Okay, so let's just dive into the photos and uh, the first one, which is which is titled. Uh, I mean, it's the best thing I've ever made. So uh, let's. Uh, what, do you want to describe the the photo because uh, it's you know people can't can't uh, see it. So. <laughs> sure, the photo is one I took of my son. One of many, probably hundreds of pictures I've taken of my son at the beach. In this particular photo, he is. Uh, running away from me towards the sea with a little naked bum bum. He's two and a half now. That picture was taken when he was about two. And it's just, yeah, my son running across the beach towards the sea. Nice. Yeah, so uh, essentially the the it's a full body photo. He's wearing a necklace. Uh, we can't see his yeah, face. Yeah, he has an amber necklace on. We can't see his face. He's, uh, you know, sort of traipsing towards, uh, you know, into the very small surf. It looks like you're on Lantau Island. Yes. Okay. In Muiwo, I guess? Uh, that picture was probably taken. There's a little private beach that we go to. It's not too far from Muiwo. Oh, nice. Sweet. Um, okay. Why? Why? Okay. You know, my request was send me a photo of where your head is at these days. And you're a parent. You have a two and a half <laughs> year old. It makes sense. You said this is obviously kids take up. Speaking of bandwidth, they just take up all your mental bandwidth. Yeah, no, it's full on. It's in a good way. It's absolutely full on. It's all encompassing. It becomes your like absolute purpose in life, basically. For sure. In many ways. For sure. Yeah. So the same, mate. Um, what? You know, well, the reason I picked this. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the reason I picked this picture is because, and the reason I titled it that is because I feel like I've, um, you know, I'm 42 years old. I feel like I've done a lot of interesting things in my life, and some achievements and some experiences uh and i never really planned to uh have kids or wasn't particularly bothered either way uh, then i met my husband andy who has been on your podcast and i married him and we decided we would try for a kid or at least stop trying not to have one and uh and so very quickly benjamin which is my son's name came along and it's been because i guess because i wasn't one of those people that like really like all my life has been like oh my gosh i really want kids i was really I was really um, surprised at how how into being a parent I I was and still am. Like I just love being his mother. I love being a mother. I love the whole, you know, sort of sisterhood of motherhood of other mothers and that whole village mentality. I love the 
you know, like giving my son a hug at night when he's woken up with nightmares. Like I love all of it. All mm-hmm. the I love changing diapers, everything. You know, yeah, when we yeah. had diapers back in the day. Like it just amazed me because I never really was too bothered either way. And now I'm like, oh my god, being a mom is the best thing ever. <laughs> well, <laughs> by surprise. Well, I like uh, similar to Delia and myself. Like we didn't actually. We were actively we talk about not wanting to have children. And then mm-hmm. when when we hit 40, it was like, okay, well, if we're, we're going to get pregnant. Might, this is going to be the year. So let's just see what kind happens. Kind of never, never, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it, like, you know, uh, she got knocked up very quickly. So it's like, oh, well, yeah. I guess we're going to become parents now. <laughs> happening. Yeah, same same thing, basically. Within, like, a, a month of deciding, it was it was like, well, right. we're doing this now. <laughs> same, 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 <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so what ha- what is, you know, as parents, you know, um, what has being uh, in this whole COVID pandemic, this is a really weird time to be raising mm-hmm. children or young, I mean, it's a really, yeah. really weird time. So uh, how Not is this? COVID. I mean, especially COVID because it's global, but also living here in Hong Kong, you know, politically, it's like, oh, gosh, what are we bringing our child into? What world are we bringing our child into? Yeah. You know, all around the world, actually, and climate change, like, what have we, what have we done? Like, what is my son going to have to deal with when he's my age? Mm-hmm. What's the situation going to be? And is that fair to him? And, and even just having a kid, is that fair to everybody else? Because yeah. having a kid is such an environmental, like, they're all the environmental disasters. We're walking, you know, environmental bombs. And yeah. so that was a big moral decision. Like, just have a kid or how, how many kids to have is sort of a... It's a matter of responsibility for your planet, too. So, yeah, it's like it's a mind. Well, I'm not going to use a foul word on your podcast, but it's a messes up your head. You know, you know, you can say fuck uh, as much as you like. It is, <laughs> okay. it, is it is shooting it raw. So it's a, we're all it's adults a complete here. Mind fuck. So, yeah. Um, and it still is. There's times when I think about it. I'm like, what am I doing? Like, what have I done? But then there's this overwhelming and I know this is hormonal and I know this is evolutionary and it's like it's a human gut instinct you're just like I have to have this child and I have to take the best care of him I can I have to love the crap out of him yeah. that's what I gotta do I'm human we're mammals yeah but, well here's the, but here's the thing is that we're, we're dealing also with such heavy complexity and one brain can't possibly contain all this con- complexity and everything so as a conservationist as a fellow conservationist you know, the, the, the environmental impact for me was, a, and, and for, for Delia as well, was a huge uh, mm-hmm. moral question. And yet, late, very recently, new models suggest that actually human populations are, are looking to potentially collapse within the next hundred years because mm-hmm. of low birth rates and all this stuff. So it's like, oh, so all of a sudden, yeah. it, you know, it's just been... Oh, it's a lot to think about and a lot to deal with. Yeah, and, yeah. And and it's and I mean to be fair, you can't expect most of the population you can't like you know there isn't an expectation there for people like having children isn't about okay, let's do some research, let's see what the studies are saying, let's mm-hmm. determine, you know, the the cost be- cost benefit ratio. Like it's not it's, it's like we want to have a kid, we want something to love, boom, mm-hmm. let's do it. Mm-hmm. That's what well, most people how most people approach it. And that's fair, you know, like we've gotten a place in the world where we where like these are all considerations but at the end of the day most parents are just like we really want a child like you know it's such a strong instinct that we're willing to like throw everything else aside and kind of turn a blind eye to it but yeah i mean in terms of you know population and and low birth rates and um and what your child can bring like i guess cost benefit ratio it 
I, I, we've always said we will raise our child. You never know what kids will end up being or doing or wanting, but we will raise our child our level best to be, you know, a warrior for what's good and a protector of the planet. And, you know, and we need those. We need more and more of those. And so Mm. that's part of how I, for lack of a better word, justify this, you know, this having of a child. It's a visceral reaction. It's a, I, you know, uh, and to a certain extent, I think they're, justification uh some things we can move beyond needing to feel guilt or whatever and and needing to justify and and it being okay to say well okay so we we have a child and uh, and and to you know commit. make the most of it we're gonna do yeah. our best with it and yeah absolutely okay well, let's move on to the next photo because okay um, it relates actually so you were mentioning the covid thing i'll, t- I'll describe the photo first sure, right? sure, yeah. sure. so it's a picture of oh, what did i send you hang on i can't remember at home in the country oh yeah yeah so it's a, yeah the picture i took uh this past winter i was just sitting at breakfast at our dining table looking out the window and i was like gosh like it's such a beautiful day and it's just this gorgeous winter light streaming through the window the window is one of the many in our house that um, we have a lot of windows in our house and it's this, the old school Hong Kong Chinese old school windows with like green, I don't know how to describe it. They kind of have, like, if you've, if you've lived here a long time, if you've seen the old buildings, you'll know, like it's a kind of window that I absolutely love and our plants are in it and it just kind of, it's very quaint and it very much reflects our entire home's style. And because it's, you know, the plants and the little antiques and stuff that are sitting on the windowsill. And the reason I picked it, it just is it really runs, it makes me smile, it makes me remember how much I love my home. And it relates to the previous picture, actually, and the question that you asked, which was around COVID and having a kid and stuff. And so we moved out to Lantau Island. We're living in a very rural area of Lantau Island. It's not, it's not a village. There's no road to our house. There's a farm to the right of us and actually in a farm to the left of us and a field and a stream in front of us and uh, a mountain behind us. Like, there's really not, it's very rural. And we moved out here from Tinhau. So the, wow. like just next to Causeway Bay wow. in March last year. And oh, in March God. last year, there was nothing happening of significance in Hong Kong. By June last year, there were protests in the street, you know, um, water t- cannons rolling down what used to be our front door road, you know, bus stops and Starbucks being burnt to the ground in front of our old flat. So we didn't even know at the time. We just thought we need more space. Our apartment's kind of crap. Let's move because we have a kid and we chose to move to Lantau, me kind of reluctantly at the time. Hmm. And then after we moved to Lantau, like the basically the city has like Imploded. practically gone up in flames. Like yeah. First pro- first protest and then COVID. And so just my love for where I live has just like increased exponentially every time something happens in the city. And I'm like, thank God we're not there right now. Mm-hmm. My son has, you know, even under the, the tightest sort of, Re- social distancing restrictions that we've had, my son can still go outside on his tricycle and roam around the neighborhood and go splash in the stream. And, you know, we do stuff like in the spring, we went and found some tadpoles and brought them home and watched them grow into frogs. Like, where in urban Hong Kong do you get to do that? Nice. So I just love living here. I love the, the sensation. I love being on a podcast with you while sitting with my feet up on my balcony and looking out at the trees. Nice. It's just an amazing, I'm just so grateful for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. so one one of the things that um, people that people who know me and, and, and have who've seen my images and all this stuff, 
they're going to get a certain uh, different view or perspective of Hong Kong. And most people, when they think of Hong mm-hmm. Kong, they think, okay, seven and a half million people who live in this hyper-dense urban area. Yeah, yeah. But, but uh, what There's great... So, so much the, more. Let me describe a little bit. So the light is beautiful. It's very warm. Um, behind the glass, you can see that it's a sunny day. And you can see the hillside. So it's roughly, I mean, this is um, leading up, I'm assuming, towards Sunset Peak and all this stuff, or maybe Silvermine Bay uh, hills. And yeah, so, that's, yeah, it's, yeah, behind Silvermine Bay, exactly. Right. You so, can see the mountain. Exactly. So people, our, we call it our mountain. Yeah. <laughs> so like, like yourself, where I live, we're, we're, we're surrounded by green jungle hillsides, mm, yeah. so much life. Um, and so in the image, there are all these sort of uh, pots and plants and, and sort of antique like a honey can or something. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's just, it's very soothing. It's a very soothing. Yeah, it feels know. so home to me. It sure. says home. Like sure. it says me, it says how I choose to live my life. It says the view that I always, that I want to have. Mm. And I knew you'd relate because you live out in the jungle too. Yeah. So I knew you'd get that. <laughs> right, for sure. And it's a you know, it's a beautiful image. It's a beautiful image. And what I, I, this actually segues very beautifully because, okay, so the first image was, you know, the greatest thing or the best thing I've ever made, right? In terms of like, uh, in terms of your life's work and whatever, um, you yeah. feel right now this emotionally strong uh, uh, connection uh, mm-hmm. to, to being a mother and, and your son, which is, yeah, which is amazing. And then the second image is of your home in green, this beautiful pastoral scene. And this segues beautifully really into into how you and I have met. And we met mm-hmm. through the sort of conservation community. And mm-hmm. um, so w- when I met you, you were at the time you were, you had I think you had volunteered or you had just started with the uh, beach or the ocean cleanup. The Hong Kong cleanup, yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> why, why don't you talk about that for a bit and then how that dovetails into the third image that you sent? Sure. It's basically my career progression in Hong Kong. Um, well, actually, well, I came to Hong Kong in two thousand or two thousand and one, I think, in a different actually. Entirely different industry than that. From where? But that, from uh, uh, Canada via Taiwan. Oh wow! Okay. <clears throat> and when I got here, yeah, the industry I was working in was wonderful and fun, but kind of started to get a bit unfulfilling, disillusioning. So I started volunteering with my best friend's organization at the time, which was the Hong Kong Cleanup, or at the time, sorry, the Hong Kong International Coastal Cleanup, which later became the Hong Kong Cleanup, and. <coughs> Excuse me. And I became really interested in that work. It was really fulfilling and also really <clears throat> depressing to see how much waste was washing up on our shorelines. And Hong Kong has beautiful beaches, but they get covered, covered in trash every day. I and mean, they send out cleaners every single day, every single morning, sometimes two, three, four, five, six times a day to clean the rubbish away so we can't see it on the public beaches. But if you go to a beach that isn't cleaned by the government, you see the real story. So... <clears throat> Started working more and more, ended up becoming a manager and then a partner um, of that organization and really committing my full time to environmental um, conservation through the Hong Kong cleanup, which which has always been a passion of mine. I was in the environment club at high school and in university. Like I've always been sort of a nature freak and I love 
being in the outdoors and I'm a bit of a softie too. Like I'm a bit of a bleeding heart for animals and, you know, animal welfare and trees and plants and flowers. So it's been a natural fit for me. And then from there, uh, my business partner and best friend at the time, Lisa, and myself launched an ambitious small business called Ecozine. So Lisa had this incredible idea, which I think is still really was really ahead of its time and still an amazing concept um, to to provide so you know to combine sustainability messaging with the sort of more I guess commercial minded sensibilities of Hong Kong. So basically to make environmentalism sleek and sexy and appealing to the typical average Hong Kong consumer. Because there was this divide between environmentalists, or we felt like there was, between people who are genuinely environmentally conscious or interested in environmentally conscious um, activities and the mass public who just didn't have the exposure or the awareness or the, you know, the wherewithal to really make the right choices. So we, we decided to do that in the form of a magazine, online and print. So Ecozine was really super successful for a couple of years. Really, really, like, I, I'm so proud of the work we did. I love the magazines we produced. I loved the connections we made, the changes we were part of, the people I met. Like, just the whole experience was really, like, just an astonishing chapter of my life. But it was also really hard work, and I got burnt out. So I um, parted ways with Ecozine and the Hong Kong Cleanup. Let's call it a sabbatical, but basically I just needed to move on and do something else for a while. And also, that was the point at which... My husband and I had just gotten married and I was working such long hours and coming home so tired and stressed that if we were going to try and have a child, it wasn't going to happen while I was working there. So left that job in January 2016 and got pregnant in February of 2016. <laughs> um, and then, uh, sorry, 17. And then, yeah, had my son, spent some time with him and did some freelancing. I love to write and edit. So I did that in that period. And then six months after my son was born, uh, this ad was posted on JobsDB or whatever for a job that on the same day it was posted, three people, including my husband, sent me the job ad and said, you should have a look at this. This would really <laughs> fit you. And I wasn't even, none of them, I wasn't even looking for work at the time, particularly because I was freelancing, but, I, you know, and I hummed and hawed and I was like, do I want to go back to work full time? Uh, but it really was a perfect role for me in an organization I really respected. And that organization was Redress, and I'm still with that organization now. <clears throat> I'm the executive director there. Um, so I was the event director when that job started. That was the job that everyone sent me and said I should go for. And January this year, our wonderful executive director uh, had to leave Hong Kong. And so I stepped into that role. Hmm. And, I, and it's just an incredible organization to be with. So Redress, in short, focuses on the environmental impact of fashion, uh, well, fashion and textile industries, which is enormous. A lot of us, mm -hmm. people, a lot of us, don't really realize the, the the enormity of fashion's impact because it's not something that's talked about a lot. And so, what I really like about Redress, and we can get into the more the picture and more sort of the details of that in a second. What I really like about Redress is, for me personally, in a career sense, is that with the Hong Kong cleanup, when I started working with that, volunteering there in 2003, and then working full time with it. It was such a long time ago at that time, sort of single use plastics and marine debris and that kind of topic were really not mainstream enough here in Hong Kong for everybody to, to know that like getting a shopping bag, like the 50 cent rule hadn't even come in until 2009. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like, you know, it was really exciting to be on the, being on the crest of something, being part of pushing something forward, being part of making something mainstream that hadn't been mainstream yet. 
And that now, that messaging, everyone really is clear, like single-use straws, single-use plastic bags, single-use plastic bottles, single-use coffee cups, that those are bad and we need to find ways to get, to, you know, solutions for those um, problems. But fashion, now I feel like the fashion uh, world's impact on the environment, that's in terms of p- public understanding is where single-use plastics was mm-hmm. maybe 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So again, I get to be on the crest of this like spread of information, <laughs> this, this wealth of knowledge that people are about to you know, download globally and especially in Hong Kong. And, and again, be part of the change of something less well-known becoming a mainstream concern and really being something people can act on, right. yeah. if that makes sense. No, no, it's, no, it's great. So uh, let me just... Um, Picture, yeah. <laughs> so, no, no, it's great. No, so, so the image is okay. So one third of the image at the top is just a kind of uh, it's a commercial building. It's got the you know the false ceiling with the fluorescent lighting, uh, and the bottom two thirds of the image are like tables and what looks like industrial bags covered with tons of well not tons but covered with a lot of uh it is of, tons yeah, okay sure. of, of fabric of clothing <laughs> of rejected i mean could be used could be rejected could be uh unsold just lots and lots of uh shirts pants mm-hmm. um various kind of textiles the the space is large which for hong kong is unusual um so when you made that image, or what, what, describe that day and describe what this image actually uh, signifies. So I took the picture, uh, it's one of many pictures I took during what we call our Sortathon last year. Okay. And the Sortathon is the culmination of an event that we hold annually. It's a fairly young event, so not a lot of people, it's starting to, starting to become well known. Uh, every year we do what's called Get Redressed Month in the fall. So we do a lot of different programs and activities, this is one of them. <clears throat> And um, Get Redressed Month is about, it, it's October, it's about public awareness, it's about engaging the local community and local businesses and schools and families. We run a clothing drive, we do education activities. Um, the clothing drive is really useful because, you know, as an organization, the clothes that we receive, that people donate, I think we have a unique position in that, unlike other organizations that take used goods, we are committed to making sure every single stitch of clothing remains in circulation if it can. Like it's, so what we do is we receive the clothes, we sort through if every single garment we inspect and sort through with the help of volunteers, and then we send it to where we think it's going to have the most chance of actually being used and appreciated. So we work with a host of different charities like Impact HK and Mother's Choice and Crossroads and uh, Pathfinders, et cetera, et cetera. And we say to them, okay, what do you need? in clothing right now and you know let's say refugee union says well we need six bags of warm men's clothes or mother's choice says well we need five boxes of age three to five year old clothing we'll send them exactly what they need and that is a really crucial role i feel because people tend to dump their used goods on charities without really knowing that charities don't have the capacity to sort through your Mm -hmm. crap and find what they need Mm. so this really helps people be able to dispose of stuff without worry, knowing that their stuff will go somewhere good and helps the charities not have to deal with people's waste. And um, so we do this through last year, we did, we initiated a new event called the Sortathon. It was essentially a 24 hour Sortathon, like a marathon of sorting through the charity, a donation, donated clothing and deciding where it's going to go. So the clothing you see in the picture, you said it looks like tons of clothes. It's tons of donated or, you rejected, as you say, is another word you can use, clothing 
from people who've dropped them off at collection points during the clothing drive in October. Mm. And uh, that clothing drive raised, or sorry, um, accumulated about 15 tons wow. of clothing. <laughs> and so it was substantial. Um, yeah. Wow. But I mean, that's, that's nothing for Hong Kong. I think we dump like almost 400 tons of textile waste into our landfills every day. Every day. 300 and some odd tons every day. So 15 tons may seem like a lot, but we collected that over a month. And honestly, it's a drop in the bucket of the oh, daily wow. amount of textile waste in Hong Kong. So, you know, and I think about a, half of that's supposed to be clothing. So about 190 tons of clothing a day goes into Hong Kong's landfills. So we collected 15 tons. We put it in one big, as you say, industrial-looking room. As the space was donated to us by Swire. It's very hard to find a space that big in Hong Kong. So they were kind enough to give us like a whole floor of an office building to do this activity. We dumped all the clothes that we had been donated. And it was a massive pile, like of the biggest pile of clothes or anything I've ever seen in my life. And it was only 15 tons, like not even, like I say, like a <laughs> you know, tip of the iceberg, right? Oh, dude. But the fact of the matter was, same, very similar to when we used to do beach cleanups. We had these volunteers coming in and shifts from our different corporate teams. And they would come in, come off the elevator, turn around the corner, see this pile of clothing and go, holy shit. Yeah. That's a lot of, you know, and then we tell them that's not even like remotely close to what's thrown away in Hong Kong every day. It's wow. really impactful. And so I took that picture because I was like, this is, you know, this works like this. It's physically showing. And then people come in and they're sorting the clothes, they're handling them and they're seeing how much stuff gets really perfectly good stuff gets thrown away every day. And how much work it is for charities to sort through this stuff and how much good stuff there is that can still be either sold secondhand or donated to someone to use the worst case scenario, you know, up recycled or downcycled into other materials like rags or fuel pellets. It, I think uh, it's a really amazing activity, and I'm really proud of us having uh, done that. This year, we can't do it, obviously, because right. of group restrictions. But uh, we'll find other ways to carry the message forward this year. So uh, what city did you grow up in? I grew up in Ottawa, which is a small yeah. Canadian okay. city. Which you, yeah. So, yeah, so, okay. So um, one of the things that, you know, uh, you notice in, in Hong Kong is that there's a real... Uh, a cultural, I don't want to say a fetish, but a, a cultural, like there's a rejection almost of used of second goods, mm-hmm. you know? And so second Yeah, that's hand... one of the, yeah, absolutely. It's a, I mean, it's a cultural thing. It's, 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 it's a lot less um, ingrained, I think, in the younger generation and even less um, apparent than when I first arrived in Hong Kong 20 years ago. We have a lot of, very good reception to our, we, so we hold secondhand pop-up sales. Mm. So that, that donated clothing that we receive, I don't like using the word donated because it feels like like a lot of the stuff, sorry, if you donate, quote, unquote, air quotes, donate all your used socks and underwear to me, I don't consider that a donation because it's not useful to anybody. It doesn't do anything good for me. But all the stuff that's sent our way through clothing drives, we sift off the top, top, top tier, the really nice, good quality, maybe high-end brands, mm. uh, new with tags, stuff, and you wouldn't believe how much of that stuff is donated. Mm. And we do a twice annual pop-up shop of secondhand clothing, uh, which is a, I, I do all my shopping there. Like I, I pretty much buy all secondhand clothes now because it's such good value. Mm. The clothes are amazing quality. We sell them really cheap and we do a beautiful shop. And part of that is to raise funds for our work. Right. But part of it is also an educational activity because people come into this pop-up shop that we do and we do them in beautiful venues. Um, and, they go like we have people wandering in foot traffic just off the street going oh i'd like this in a size 
this please and we're like oh there's only one size it's a secondhand store but then they're like what this is secondhand and a lot of time they still buy stuff they're like amazed at how clean and how nice and what good quality clothing and it really is like transformational sometimes and exciting to see someone go oh wow well okay cool you know for sure so Um, and bringing more message to people so yeah it's it, it it is something that we're working on on changing mindsets around that because right. it's part of a circular economy is, you know, finding uses for things that someone else is finished with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how, how old is the, is the, uh, organization? So redress was founded by Christina Dean in 2007. Okay. So I guess we're about 13 years old <laughs> wow, wow, wow. And, and, uh, founded in Hong Kong. So it's only Hong Kong based. We are, we're Hong Kong based. Our headquarters is here. We have a, we have offices, um, in Paris and London, but we most of our work um, is based here. One of our programs, the Redress Design Award, is an international. It's a global program, so we it, it does we have global presence. But right, like thirteen out of fifteen of our team are in Hong Kong, basically. Oh, so you have a team of fifteen, like uh, sorry, thirteen and a half. Hong Kong. Yeah, wow. if, yeah. So. Yeah, it's a good little team. Everyone's really hardworking. It's an amazing place to work, actually. So do you guys have a, a, a dedicated office? Yes, we have an office, uh, which we actually call our Sustainable Fashion Hub. It's got a ground floor shop front, and we welcome the community to come in and, and drop by anytime and see us. It's in Sham Shui Po, wow. which is, as you probably know, Hong Kong's you know traditional garments and textile district. So we um, chose that location very strategically to be sort of in that area. Mm. And we only moved in there this past March. Wow, okay. Previously, we were working out of a donated office space in Central. So it's very exciting for us to have moved into this new office. But sad that because of COVID, we haven't really been able to welcome people there just yeah, yet. <laughs> yeah, wow. So yeah. here's another thing that I find really interesting. Um, I, 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 love, I love when when your brain does a, or one's brain does, a, you know, a, a sort of a looks again going, wait a second, that breaks with my... Um, preconceived notions, right? So, when when I met you, one of the things that's very apparent is your your tall, beautiful, very. I mean, I, you've done modeling, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, so you're very. That was so, my first career, yeah. Right. <laughs> so that, so maybe that kind of uh, gave you exposure to some of the 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 sort yes. of the clothing and textiles and the. Yep. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's that. actually very nicely come full circle in that sense, actually. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so so and then very drawn to the entrepreneurial startup, small outfit, struggling, emerging idea of, <laughs> of community uh, uh, awareness and, and edu- education. Right, right now the the redress in a way is a startup culture, and is really pushing uphill. Uh, you know, this this really pushing towards a a change of awareness and consciousness, which I find fascinating and I find inspiring. And and it's what I like to do as well. So do you have like, talk about, or or what is, what is your, your evolution or development? Has it been as, for example, as a, as a small business owner or as a small business uh, director? It's funny to hear you say that because I always describe myself as very risk averse and <laughs> Most, not someone who's entrepreneurial. <laughs> entrepreneurs always say this because, listen, as an entrepreneur myself, you are risk averse. Like you don't want to make mistakes because it really hurts. Yeah. <laughs> but then people describe you as risk, you know, as entrepreneurial. And it's like, oh, that sounds like someone who's really daring and willing to take chances. And that's not me. So I <laughs> always that kind of conversation. I'm always like, wait, are we having the right conversation here? Is this? 
are we starting with the right facts? But yeah, I don't know. It, it kind of feels jarring to me. But I mean, I do, I do, like I said, enjoy being on the crest of something new and being part of something different and not just a cog in a machine. So I guess, and then that combined with really caring about the planet makes it like a, a no brainer, I guess, to work, if not as a startup, certainly in the charity sector, which um, I would say every charity that isn't a major multinational charity is effectively a startup because mm -hmm. you're constantly back you know, and well, trying to get the, you know get somewhere with it yeah well the work i do uh in you know in my, like the the work i get paid for uh you know in service leadership has been you know we sort of say there you get two kinds of income most people think about financial income so the money you get every month for the the effort the labor that you get you put in but you also get psychic income Right. You also get uh, uh, sort of the positive yeah. energy yeah. and people yeah. don't necessarily add up, don't necessarily value it for what it is, but it's, it's actually quite mm -hmm. important. So, mm -hmm, yeah, in, in a charity, you're getting a massive, huge, yeah, massive psychic income. Yeah. Right. It's a very different um, ratio than you do in the private sector. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I guess I value that highly. Yeah, that's well said for me. I just call it fulfillment, but that's exactly right. Right. So, so in, in terms of uh, like, if you could have right now like a magic, uh, like a genie come over and say, okay, we, what what is the big problem or crisis or challenge that you're facing through uh, redress, and I can solve it. So, what would you say is that one sort of like, if you could have a magic bullet, what would it be? Would solve which challenge that you're facing right now? You know, I think this is something that a lot of environmental, I don't know, maybe social also, but certainly environmental NGOs would, would. so I mean, what I'm saying is, what I'm going to say is not exclusive to redress or the issue we face, the, the issues that we address, i.e. clothing and fabric and textiles. What I think I would love to see solved, like something someone to just come along and say, well, this is how you figure that out, is um, converting awareness into action. Because we can, like, shout from the rooftops all day long and people can go oh really like fashion accounts for you know fashion is the second greatest user of fresh water after agriculture oh fashion you know a cotton t-shirt uses three pounds of chemicals oh my gosh we're sending like 10 truckloads of uh, 10 truckloads of rubbish to of, of fabric to landfill every three seconds like all these oh that's not an actual stat by the way I'm yeah okay that one up, but, <laughs> like we can shout stats all day long and People can be like, wow, that's amazing. But the, the, tr the transformation of people's behavior is such a harder needle to move. Mm -hmm. Like knowing something and wanting to change your act actions and behaviors based on what you know is like, like it does my head in because we, you know, we can raise awareness till the cows come home. But will people actually buy less? Will they mm. spend more on better quality stuff? Will they, you know, consume less whatever it is you're dealing with, in our case, clothing? That's the, like, how do we make people just do stuff differently? Well, I mean, one way is obviously government legislation, but then you have to lobby the government, and that's also, like, a bit of a brick wall sometimes. So, yeah, that's, I think, just how do you get people to actually, and even myself, sometimes I'm like, yeah, I with everything I know, I almost wish I didn't know, you mm. know, because yeah, there's a responsibility that comes with awareness. But sure. uh, a lot of people, I, I think it's hard to sort of take that responsibility on because it feels like, it feels like for people, it feels like something that they, they have to give up. Mm. And, and, you know, f from the work I've, you know, well, that Andy does in shark and marine conservation mm -hmm. and that I've, uh, 
um, cr you know, crossed or intersected with. Uh, yeah, I totally understand that feeling of, you know, you, you think in your mind, well, if they just knew what was going on, knowledge itself yeah. would be enough to change behavior. But it's not. It's, it's not. Yeah, it's really not. So some, it can be, but mm -hmm. it's not universally. In terms of your team, right, you're, you're all kind of dispersed at the moment. How are you being uh, productive? How are you working these days? So we are working from home, but uh, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, I think, I, think about, I really appreciate that a lot of our team are really, because we've all been, you know, in this situation for months now. I think many organizations have managed to sort of pivot their working styles a little bit to work from home more effectively, but we're, we're, we're no different. But unfortunately, a lot of our work is based around events mm -hmm. like that sort of thought it is dry, but also a lot of physical events for our other programs, both in terms of fundraising and in terms of actually delivering the work. And so it's been insane. Like every week there's like a massive strategy meeting where we're like, OK, actually, that decision we made last week can't do that anymore. Let's mm -hmm. re-strategize again because now the maximum number of people is two or whatever. Right. It's, it's yeah, when you're working in an event-based um industry you have event-based programs it's really challenging mm -hmm. but uh i'm really i'm really proud of our team like we've done a lot we've embraced i am probably one of the oldest people on the team i am definitely actually and so i am probably more res reluctant or more resistant to change especially like innovation and digital change than i like to admit i want to embrace but sometimes i'm like oh can't we just do things like we've always done them? <laughs> <laughs> so fortunately i have a very young and diverse diverse and vibrant team that uh, that are willing to take, I, I guess, innovation and make it work for us. So yeah, it's it's an interesting time for everybody. I think. Yeah, in that no, sense. For, for sure. The issue with a lot of this kind of work is you. It's easy to lose, to be to, because you're facing the, such huge um, challenges, and in your mind are so important and monumental, and and. The question is, how do you avoid burning out, right? Because, so for example, you you had mentioned that before, because it's 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 hard to turn, you know, it's hard to say, okay, well, it's six o'clock, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn turn off the, yeah. I'm going off the clock now, right? So how, yeah, what's your? Well, you know what, my strategy was have a kid. Because <laughs> that really changes your priorities. Like I used sure. to be like, well, whatever, I've got nothing else to do. I'm gonna stay at the office till midnight. Like, mm -hmm. what have I got to lose? Um, and I'll eat crap and I'll have instant noodles for dinner again. And, but even as a, you know, single person without much other commitment, it still did burn me out. And I had like pretty severe, like symptoms of burnout at the time. Mm -hmm. So, so I need, so having a kid changes everything. I'm like, I don't care. The most important thing is that I see my son. Right. I have to see him. I can't go all week and not see him in the morning and leave before he wakes up and get home after he sleeps. Exactly. That's not, that's not, that's a no go non-starter. So for me, there's that, like it builds in, like I'm shutting my computer now and I'm putting my kid to bed and if I have to get back on the computer later, fine, but that's, I'm right. taking that time for me and for him. But then there's the other members of my team who are younger and I see in some of them, you know, who I used to be, which is just like, well, I'm going to work late because it has to be done. And so now as a director managing, you know, other people, it's really important for to me that my team doesn't burn out and that they have work-life balance and that their well-being is is acknowledged and looked after by mm -hmm. us as an organization mm -hmm. so that's it's 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 easier to monitor when you're working in an office together because you can see when people leave it's harder to monitor when you're working from home because right you know 
<laughs> you have no visibility over people's actual activities. And we all do work really hard. I think in the charity sector, like in the startup and entre- entrepreneurial world, people work yeah, hard. Yeah, it's a sweat equity. You know, yeah, for, for sure. little. Yeah. For sure. So, so in terms of your development as a, as a, as a leader, um, uh, you know, because now we're kind of venturing close to, you know, how I've spent the past 15 years, really, you know, professionally. Because in a way, leadership and management is is a, re- a response to the conditions of, that you're put in, right? So all of a sudden, you have 15 people to oversee. Okay, well now I'm I'm I'm. Ma- yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> so how has your development evolved? Like how or or what, what sources of inspiration have you had to guide you through through difficult managerial or leadership? Um, um I, I yeah, good question. To be honest. I think this applies to anybody, you know, working to improve themselves professionally. Google is your best friend. There's just so much out there. You know, 15 years ago, if somebody wanted to sort of take on a new role they'd never done, they'd have to find a mentor or do a course or do, you know, learn it somewhere because it just wasn't, you couldn't just tap, click a button and download something and read it. So, yeah, there's been a, I, I, I have spent anything that comes up. I'm like, I don't know. I jump on the computer and mm-hmm. I'm like, what do other people do? Mm-hmm. How is this bit that was in other organizations? What's best practice look like? You know, mm-hmm. but also I have some really good mentors in my life. Um, I think the last executive director at my current at redress um, was excellent. She did the job really well. She took care of people. She was genuine. She was just a really good leader. So I take pages from that. But without trying to be that person, also bringing my own myself to it. Sure. And then I also have, um, he's going to hate that I say this, but my husband is a constant source of inspiration to me. The way he works and the way he, you know, is as a professional. <laughs> um, and his passion for his work and the way he manages his stuff. I'm and sure he's a he really would, good sounding board, too. He you know, would he's a really hate, good. Yeah, I'm sure Andy well, would hate to know that like, you admire and love and respect he, him. Well, no, but. That I get all sappy about it on, in public. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's awesome. It's really good to have someone though that lives with you, that's right there at dinner time, that you can be like, "So this thing happened today. What would you do, or right. what do you think? Can I bounce an idea off you?" Mm-hmm. Well, okay. That's, that's so, <laughs> so from the the world of service leadership that that you know I train, what, what we talk about is saying, well, um, at the very core service you know at the very core leadership and management is a service like you're basically it's the energy you're, you're bringing to other people right and uh, yeah and and rather than thinking about it as like a pyramid with a top down like command and control uh when one person decides everything uh the mm. kind, when you're in a service <laughs> organization uh like redress it's in a sense it's like it's if you're if you're a parent you learn very quickly what it is to be a, a, a service leader because yeah. your kid is watching you and taking the lead and taking inspiration and you're guiding them. And, and kids are like the, the young kids are like the worst employees you could ever have. They show yeah. up to, you know, they show up like essentially like a drunk rugby player. You know, it's like, oh, yeah. geez, geez, I have to ma- you shit on the floor, man. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. So, so how do you feel your role in terms of your relationship to your to your staff has uh, been influenced by you being a parent? I've never looked at it from that perspective, but I guess there is there's definitely areas areas that I can see that are similar. I guess being a parent requires patience, and it requires knowing 
like picking your battles. It also requires like, like you say, managing drunk, small, short, drunk people <laughs> and getting the, and getting the best out of them and coaxing them to do things in a way that doesn't upset them. But also I think in terms of leadership in the organization and as a parent, you know, you want, you're not trying to control that person or control those people or get them to do what you want necessarily all the time. You, Yes, as a parent, you do want the child to get dressed and brush their teeth. And as an employer, you do want the person to finish the spreadsheet and, you know, give, deliver the presentation or whatever. But you also want to help that person excel as a person and help them feel good about their work or themse and themselves. Mm -hmm. So I guess as a, as a manager, as a leader in the organization, and I said this to my team not long ago, like I, my, I exist to help make sure that they can accept, do their jobs without worrying about, you know, the organization, like our, the things that I do aren't specifically about advancing our programs in terms, in terms of like, okay, I'm going to finish this PowerPoint. I might do that. But I also core part of my job is like making sure nobody has to worry about budgets. Nobody has to worry about the rent. Nobody has to worry about HR issues. Nobody has to worry about our insurance or our business registration renewal. Nobody has to worry about our network. Nobody has to worry about what COVID is going to do to us. Mm -hmm. I'll cover those things so you guys can just get on with your lives and right. your work, not worry. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so making sure that all the foundation and the cogs are in place so people can comfortably get along about their day and, and feel supported and know that there's a strong foundation there for them. Mm. Is your team bilingual, like in a sense, like, is it? Yes. Living on Lantau is pretty amazing. How do you recharge? I mean. Okay, let me tell you a story. I, my, we found this place in Lantau while we were living in Tinhau, or Taihang, actually. And I was like, we are not moving to Lantau. Are you effing crazy? That's, it's so fucking far away. It's so, like just you know boonies of hong kong and my husband was like well let's just go have a look for comparison's sake we're, we're going to start looking for a new place anyways let's just go see what rents are like see what it is exactly that you hate about it so we took the ferry over one day and we looked around and we right off when we got off the ferry there's a, a property agency to the left of the ferry and we went in there and we're like well just show us some places and he showed us a place by the beach which we were like actually that's really nice but we it was too small for us um so because we had a, a baby at the time so he was like well i've got this other place to show you it's a bit further from the pier and it doesn't match the description that you've given me of what you're looking for but it's a really special place it's rare on the market i think you might like it it's good for a family so he took us uh in his car to the end of the road and then he we started walking along this little path between farmers fields and it's starting to get cloudy and dark and we looked at each other we're like do we really know this guy well <laughs> enough to where is he taking us like i've never followed a stranger this deep into somewhere i've never been like in the foothills of so anyway what and we kept ca casting glances at each other like this is crazy wherever this is leading <laughs> we're not fucking moving to whatever the shithole he's you know and then we rock up to this place which is the place we live in now and we looked at each other again we're like oh well maybe <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> because it's just a, such a special house and it's such a special you know place like it's just this bowl of the valley and you're at the back of it with a mountain behind you and it's just special mm -hmm. it's got great function i'm sure so we decided to move in and it was a big jump and I was like, okay, well, it's going to be a lot of sacrifice, the boat ride, the commute, mm -hmm. the bike ride home, because you have to ride a bike, there's no road, yeah. about eight minutes cycle from the pier. And I was like, but you know what, for my kid's sake, for him to have all that nature, blah, 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 I'll do it. Fast forward a couple of years to now and 
the parts that I thought would be the greatest sacrifice. So I had my office in Central, but now my office is in Shamshui Po. It's it's an hour and a half commute each way. Yeah, it's it's substantial. It's no it's joke. A pain for sure. But half of that commute. I love, like, it's my favorite part of the day. So back to your question about how do you decompress or, or, you know, recharge. I get on that ferry in Central. Mm-hmm. And the minute I board the ferry, mm-hmm. oh, and I, I like the slow ferry better. I used to think, oh, my God, if I ever have to take a slow ferry, I'll die. I'll mm-hmm. just slip my wrist. But, because at least I have a fast ferry I can take. But now the slow ferry has an outside deck. You can just chill out. It's like you're on a junk trip mm-hmm. twice a day. And the sun is setting and your wind's blowing in your hair. That already, you can just feel your stress melting away. I feel Absolutely. it like just disappearing behind me. As the city recedes, I feel my stress receding and my life, you know, my, my mindset changing and my thoughts coming around to my family and my home. And Absolutely. like you know, Even I, if I'm working on the ferry, it's still like, okay, work is already kind of sifting away behind me. I, I used to live in Changsha. Right. And so Changsha. And um, so, mm-hmm. so I, yeah, and, I, and my office is in Wenchai. Um, so it was again the hour, hour and a half commute, and like you said, yeah. like for me, for me, like no matter how stressful the day was, when you get on the ferry, sometimes you can get a cocktail. You know, yeah, why not? You know? <laughs> yeah. So you know, it's like you have an hour of just sitting on the water. And just it just totally decompresses. Gorgeous. You. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. 45 minutes, not an hour. I, okay, would, sorry. I, I think I would die. <laughs> but, 45 minutes is my upper limit. But I but yeah, it's that and even and then I get off the ferry and I still I used to think, oh my god, if I I thought I'd rather live somewhere that I could at least take a bus or drive mm-hmm. a car. But we ended up somewhere I had to ride a bike and I was like, okay, that's another big sacrifice I'm gonna make. I hate riding a bike home every day, but okay. I love it. Mm-hmm. I love riding a bike every day. It's a little bit of exercise. It's wind in your hair. It's like seeing, you know, sometimes you have to stop because there's too many buffalo on the path and wait for them to move before you can cycle past. It's oh, like so magic. So good. <laughs> yeah, like, it. yeah, for sure. For sure. Hey, look, Nisa, um, this is coming to a close. I mean, basically, awesome. you, you know, yeah. and I think it's a nice way to, to end uh, the conversation because yeah. It's a yeah. It's exactly that. It's magic. It's like it's beautiful, and and in a way, I think for this kind of work and around conservation and trying to make a difference and that kind of stuff, it can be very difficult and very challenging. I have to say, living again, I have to come back to where I live and and what I have, the pictures I took, like the impact we're making and the place that I live. Like I look around me right now, I'm looking around at lush green hillsides and I'm like, how could I not want to do everything in my power to protect that? Right. And then I'm going to go in the house in a minute and look at my son and be like, how can I not do everything in my power for his future? It's like, duh. Like this is, uh, <laughs> these, I, you know, I love it. A hundred percent. Nisa, thank you so much. Thank you. Awesome. Have a great day. Okay. You too. Bye. Bye. Gratitude and a sense of humor go a long way.